has run from 30th of November until the 12th of December, hosted in the oil-rich nation of the United Arab Emirates. It's been a very different year to last year and a more significant turnout from fossil fuel lobbyists. It's culminated in a really difficult communique and certainly a debate over what countries should or could do to reduce as opposed to phasing out of fossil fuels. What have been the key conversations to date? Where is regulation heading? And what should institutional investors remember and adopt in their own plans on the back of COP28? Welcome to QPod, QIC's Investor Insights podcast series. I'm Katrina King, General Manager of Capital Solutions, and I'm joined by Dr. Sebastian Thomas, QIC's Climate and Environment Lead. Sebastian has presented on a panel at COP28 with the Investor Group on Climate Change on mobilising climate investment, and will share his insights on several different investment pillars. Welcome, Sebastian. Thanks, Katrina. Good to be with you. So how was the panel? So the panel really was looking at how Australia can collaborate with partners like India or Indonesia in mm. our region, in the Indo-Pacific, to build mutually supportive and, and productive relationships through trade and investment. An example with Indonesia, for instance, is the fact that they want to develop their electric vehicle manufacturing capabilities, but they see Australia as a key partner in not just providing the critical minerals for the batteries for those EVs, but in building out uh, our value add by becoming the provider of those batteries. So this is the conversation that's happening at the moment where we start to see where are the growth opportunities, where are the partnerships that will work across the investment supply chain and, and how that can benefit everybody involved. And with those partnerships and, and some of those opportunities that you were just mentioning, it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on, is it just sort of talking at a high level or are we at a point now when we really should be thinking that there is an institutional investment opportunity with some of these? Well, I think the place to start is what's constrained institutional investment into regional developing economies in the first place, and then how are those constraints being addressed? So I think there are a number of reasons that we've not seen capital flows into those regional partner countries, including, for instance, just a lack of familiarity and relationships. Secondly, concerns about different types of risk from governance risk and and transparency issues through to currency risk, um, including not just dynamics in, in, in how exchange rates work, but the cost of capital, which is traditionally substantially higher in, in those emerging markets, often due to the sort of fiscal debt space that's available in those, those places. Government is increasingly aware of those issues and looking at ways to mitigate them. So the Australian government, for instance, has a range of initiatives in place, like the Southeast Asia Business Exchange Program, which is there to support two-way trade and build the relationships by taking business missions into Asia um, and creating programs to raise awareness of business opportunities and so on. And so as these sorts of approaches to de-risking investment and capital flows, to building relationships, to ensuring improved transparency in financial governance, and by then providing co-investment to support and encourage the private sector's engagement, I think policy settings are being leveraged to secure some of those outcomes. 
Sebastian, as we look at some of the wrap-ups from the conference, uh, it looks like fossil fuel phase-out is quite contentious. I'd just be interested in your thoughts on that and, and what the implications of the draft wording is looking like. The question that every COP for almost 30 years has been dealing with is how to keep fossil fuels in the ground. Because the, the fundamental reality is that in order to address climate change, we must stop using fossil fuels in our energy and industrial systems, simply because they add too much energy to the planetary system. And that is what's driving global heating and a, and a changing climate. So what's strong about the statement this final draft text makes is that for the very first time in almost 30 years, the language is there that we must transition away from fossil fuels in our energy systems beginning within this decade. The downside of that is that there's no commitment to peak emissions by mid-decade, by 2025. There's no commitment to to make it very, very clear what, what needs to be done. But there are good things in there, and that's the first time that that transitioning away from statement has been made. There are other things in, in this final statement that are very positive, the tripling of installed renewable energy capacity globally, the acceleration of zero and low emissions technologies, which means that you know there is a clear signal for investment in these emerging areas of renewables, carbon removal, natural capital, low carbon hydrogen production, and so on. And there is a statement around accelerating uh, the substantial reduction of non-carbon dioxide emissions, in particular methane. So that's really speaking to, to the need to, to work in the areas of agriculture and land use. It seems as though Australia has taken quite a leadership role at this COP. What are some of the significant pledges that we have undertaken? Australia has made pledges to you know, join the Glasgow Statement, which is ending international public finance for fossil fuels. So we will no longer be providing finance for international fossil fuel developments. And we've also come back into the adaptation funds, the Green Climate Fund. Australia's pledged $50 million to that and also an, an additional $100 million to the Pacific Resilience Facility, which is there to support um, our Pacific neighbours in climate change adaptation. There was almost $200 million US uh, of new financing announced for nature uh, on the Nature and Land Use Day at the COP. And Australia is increasingly interested in these, uh, in driving some of those adaptation funds into nature-based solutions from smart agriculture and climate resilient green infrastructure uh, or blue infrastructure. We've spoken a little bit about the transition from fossil fuels. As an Australian perspective on that, one of the opportunities that we hear that Australia should be quite a leader in is critical minerals. We have a significant amount of knowledge on mining. What do you, do you think about the importance and the opportunities of that for investors? I think there's probably a couple of things to say. The first is that Australia's number one objective for the action agenda at this, this COP to support the global acceleration in renewable energy uptake and critical minerals are critical uh, to, to that massive shift. So right now we have somewhere between five and seven trillion US dollars pledged for investment every year to 2030 in greening the global economy. Those renewable energy pledges, tripling installed capacity by that date, they require those critical minerals. And it's not just the renewable energy power generation infrastructure. We're talking about so many other technologies associated with it, from photovoltaic cells to other other components within the, the demand management and, and efficiency technologies. So I think 
the first thing to say is that there is a massive global demand already and it will continue to grow. The second thing to say is that Australia, given the advanced nature and the sophistication of our technologies, technological skill sets and our research and development capabilities, we have the opportunity to, to increasingly move from being the sort of dig and ship approach to adding value in those in those supply chains and really taking ourselves up that ladder of that development process in order to increase and enhance our investment returns. If we're just mining and shipping it, we're, we're not going to realise the full value that we possibly could within that rapidly growing market. Uh, it's a great it's a great lens, though, what you've just been espousing there. I think when investors think about the opportunities of the phase out, it can be quick to jump to uh, supporting simply renewable energy projects per se. Uh, but really, there's a whole raft of opportunities around that that may not be so much in focus and, and perhaps offer strong risk-adjusted returns still because they're perhaps not what's so well bid around that critical mineral space, but also around the supporting technologies for the renewables opportunity. I think, Katrina, it's it's really worth saying that how we must think about climate change mitigation and adaptation and sustainable development is not separately. We must we must be able to think about those issues as as all part of the same complex system. And so there's increasing maturity and sophistication in both public and philanthropic sectors when it comes to what they finance. And as the private sector comes into that space as well, there is the need to generate not just a financial return on investment, but to create different types of value across those complex systems. Thank you, Sebastian. Um, it's been fantastic to get your thoughts from your panel at COP28. Uh, Sebastian, any closing comments that you have? What are you looking forward to for the next COP? <laughs> well, the next COP, Katrina, uh, I believe is going to be in Baku in Azerbaijan. I think what it's worth saying about each COP is that ambition increases and there is increasing ambition because there is growing pressure. I saw a photo of the path to the, some of the final negotiations in Dubai, and the path was lined by hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of young people, Indigenous people, people in suits, every possible representative that you could imagine, lining that path, just imploring and requesting and demanding, really, that the delegates go in there and work as hard as they possibly could to secure the best possible outcomes. So if we don't get this time round a hard outcome in terms of the transition, then we will get much closer to it and we will get much closer to it again at the next COP and the next until it is done. Thank you very much for your insight, Sebastian. It's been a pleasure. I look forward to talking to you soon.